you've got to absolutely commit with self-discipline daily to practices that will make you more resilient, to practices that will ensure that when you get better, if you are broken, that you won't be broken again. So I always say it like this. It's not what happens to you that matters. It's how you respond mentally that matters. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is your host, Matt Labrie, and you're rocking with us here on the Decoding Success Podcast, which is bringing to you today the world's leading TV hypnotist, mentalist, and brain hacker, world-renowned mentalist, magician, and subconscious mind specialist, our friend, Keith Barry is joining the show. Now, his entertaining keynotes and live performances inspire audiences to break through performance barriers and reprogram our subconscious minds to accomplish our biggest of goals. And that is exactly what he's helping us do here today. Learn about the subconscious mind, understand how these performance barriers come about, how to take those walls down, so on and so forth. Really, really excited to be delivering this message to you, but I'm going to give you a fair warning. This is a very vulnerable message from Keith. In fact, he's actually sharing some really vulnerable stories just to show you how his work works, right? He needed to do it for himself before he could do it for anyone else. And that is what gives him the ability to join shows just like this. So you're going to be exposed to an immense amount of wisdom from Keith about, again, the subconscious mind, performance barriers, a lot more than that as well. I don't want to give everything away here. A lot of vulnerable shares, a lot of vulnerable stories, wisdom, experiences, his own personal and people that he's worked with. The list goes on. So with that being said, there's no fee for listening to the show. But if there was, it would be for you to share this episode. Maybe not share it right now. You might want to say, well, Matt, you know, I need to buy into it. Give me something first. So listen to the episode before you share it. But at the minute it strikes a chord with you, at the minute it really hits home, I'm going to urge you to make sure you're sharing it with the people in your circle, whether that be, again, you've heard me say it before on your Instagram story, make sure you tag us, whether that be on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, your text messages, your word of mouth in conversation while you're at the coffee shop or in your lunch break room or wherever you are, just urging you to share it. And to that point, without further ado, we bring to you our friend, world-leading TV hypnotist, mentalist, and brain hacker, Keith Barry. Keith, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here. As I just mentioned, your work is incredible. Really excited to be able to amplify this. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Absolutely. Now, listen, I might be going down a topic you've talked about a million and one times, but I need to start with your TED talk. Your, your TED talk. I just sure. sent it to a bunch of buddies. Your TED talk, man. I have no words for it, but I want to start with the beginning of it where, and for the people that are listening, kind of paint the picture here. You hop in a car with a woman who's blindfolded, ended up taking the blindfold off of her, putting it on yourself and driving. I, I need to learn more about this because I think it's absolutely incredible. So you were seeing through someone else's eyes for what you were saying. I'm just more curious to learn. Is that seeing through the eyes physically or is it more mentally? No, more mentally. So, you know, I don't believe just this is a personal opinion. I actually don't believe in psychics at all, but I do believe that we have obviously a profound ability to heighten our levels, levels of intuition and tap into the 86 billion neurons that we've got in our brain. And, you know, ultimately, that's what I do as both a motivational speaker, as a, a mind coach and also as an entertainer. So the piece that you talk about uh, weird enough that was back in 2003 here in Ireland on an episode of a TV show that I had called Close Encounters with Keith Barry. And then I did it a number of times since uh, over there in the US. So one time on CBS in 2006 with Nicole Scherzinger from the Pussycat Dolls. So you can find that version up online too. And then obviously for my TED Talk. So the concept being that if you take away one of your senses, your other senses uh, do become heightened. So scientifically, your other senses become heightened if you remove one of your senses. And that was what the piece was truly about, was me you know, heightening my other senses to the extent that I could, you know, communicate subconsciously with this person in order to see the road that ultimately I was driving on at like 60 or 70 miles an hour completely without sight, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was incredible. You bring up the word intuition and I I ask this question. I I don't want to say often, but I'm always curious to hear the perspective. We live in a really noisy world, right? There's distractions at our fingertips. I mean, you can turn to my left. I have a TV here. Turn to my right. I have other distractions. How do we know when it's our intuition versus the voice in our head? I think they're a very similar thing, really. I Like for me, you know, I always look at science. So a lot of people don't know, even your listeners here who may be familiar with my work. I'm actually a scientist first and foremost. So I look at everything from a scientific background. You know, it was recently discovered that 95% of our purchase making decisions, and this is by Professor Gerald Zaltman, I believe, if I'm not uh, misremembering. Yes, Gerald Zaltman, very well-known scientist out there. Ultimately, 95% of our purchase making decisions are made subconsciously, which basically are good instinct, right? So for me, I think our internal voice and our good instinct, emotional intelligence collectively together is really what intuition is. So in other words, harnessing the power of the subconscious mind coupled with emotional intelligence and then learning how to follow your gut instinct and your intuition rather than following just something that might seem like an instinctive choice, which is a very different thing. So I think you can train your level of heightened intuition. And that really comes from my own perspective. The way I train my intuition is down to creative visualization on a daily basis in an alpha brainwave state though. So creative visualization, a lot of people try it and and they fail, right? They don't understand that there's a certain system you should follow in order to effectively creatively visualize. Because if you just close your eyes and visualize something, even if you visualize it in bright, vivid, colorful detail, it's not really changing the neurology of your brain. It's not really doing anything. And that's where I think some people get that wrong. And for me, training my intuition does come down to creative visualization in an alpha brainwave state, you know? Interesting. So is alpha brainwave when you first wake up and when you first, and when you start going to bed? No, it's the sweet spot that you're in when you're in that kind of dreamlike state. So you're kind of semi-awake, but you're asleep. So for me, that's the sweet spot that you need to be in in order to effectively create these new neural pathways in the brain. So for example, to get into that alpha brainwave state personally, I've written about this in my book. I know we're going to talk about the book in a moment, which I believe is finally available on Amazon. So you can get it out there, certainly on the book depository anyway. But ultimately, in to get into that alpha brainwave state, what I do, you have to commit, right? So you've got to commit 15 minutes every day and self-discipline is key with all of these things so for me the first five minutes of that i've got a way that i basically relax my physical body and ensure that i'm in the most relaxed physical state that i can be in then i relax my conscious mind down by you know visualizing what i call a staircase of relaxation and then for the final five minutes uh, that's the sweet spot that i'll be in when i need to create creatively visualize whatever it is i need to visualize but the first 10 minutes are key so you got to relax your physical body but also then relax your conscious mind and quieten your conscious mind because your conscious mind gets in the way all the time so you got to move that conscious mind out of the way in order to tap into our inner resources in our subconscious mind. And for me, those 15 minutes are my golden time every day. I generally do it in the morning, but sometimes if I miss that, I'll ensure that I catch up. That's what I mean by that alpha brainwave state is when your physical body is relaxed to such an extent and your conscious mind is relaxed to such an extent, you're in that dreamlike state in between sleep and awakeness and alertness, because then you can focus on what you need to focus on and become what you need to become in order to lead and excel with greatness, you know? Absolutely. Now, I I want to take a step backwards. I know that you brought up the subconscious mind and you kind of use the word good instinct. Do you relate the two subconscious mind and good instinct together? No, I mean, the subconscious mind is so complex. That's why a lot of people don't really understand it. Even scientists argue about it now. Um, But yeah, you you know, I mean, intuition and instinct are cousins of each other. However, when you're instinctual, you tend to rely more on your emotional vehicle. And that's when you can sometimes get it wrong, right? So uh, if you just rely on instinct the whole time, you're going back to that kind of reptilian brain and only the reptilian brain. So for me, um, that's where, again, I just go back to it all the time, right, is training your subconscious mind, then you can harness that instinct rather than just following it without examining the information that's in front of you at that given moment in time, even in a millisecond, by the way. So even if you have to make a decision in a second, such as you might see a kid on a road, your instinct tells you to run and grab that kid off the road, but then you've got to make that calculated choice. If I go grab that kid off the road, are we both going to get hit by the truck? You know, and these are the things I say to people, which sounds, uh, you know, obviously that's metaphorical, but actually a real example, because ultimately, you know, we can live or die 
guide by instinct versus intuition versus our subconscious. And, you know, I, I work with high performing individuals all over the world. And when I talk to them about this stuff, I say, when was the last time that you actually, you know, really knuckled into your subconscious mind and filtered out, you know, the noise versus what you really need to achieve? Most of the time, people look at me and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, huh? What are you talking about? You know, that's what I say to people, you know, even if you're already high performing, very often behind the scenes, people, they're actually quite broke and they put up this facade and everything's great and successful. But then behind the scenes, they're, they're pill popping before they go to bed, they're pill popping in the morning. And I'm like, well, you're not that successful, all right? If you're only a business a couple of hundred million, but then you're ultimately just pill popping all day long. You know, that's not a level of success that certainly I would aim for, you know? Absolutely. And I 100% agree. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I'm curious to learn how we can use our subconscious mind to get out of the, the state where we're internally broke, right? Someone on the outside might be very externally rich, but we're talking about being internally broke here. How could we use the subconscious mind to help us? Great question, right? Because I think the world in general is very broken right now. And I think people are broken right now. And, you know, well, let's take it step by step. First of all, in order to gain emotional intelligence, which I always say, you know, EI beats IQ day in, day out, right? You can have the highest IQ in the world, but if you're not in control of your emotions, it means nothing. So for me, it comes down to that mental programming because you wouldn't be so broken if you programmed yourself to not be broken. Now that that's not a good answer if somebody's listening to this podcast right now and is broken and needs to help themselves, right? So for me, there's a couple of things that are necessary. One is, you know, you've got to absolutely commit with self-discipline daily to practices that will make you more resilient, to practices that will ensure that when you get better, if you are broken, that you won't be broken again. So I always say it like this. It's not what happens to you that matters. It's how you respond mentally that matters. That's the only thing that matters. So I'll give you a couple of quick examples of moments in my own life that could have broken me, but didn't. Okay, because people may be able to relate to this. So this is why I'll give these examples and then I can loop back around. So, you know, in 2007, I was in a massive car accident, head on car collision. And I looked down and my left leg was completely demolished. So my knee was broken. My tibia and fibia had disintegrated all the way down from the impact. My foot was dislocated and was wrapped up around my ankle going the wrong way. And all of the metatarsals are the bones to the toes, they were broken as well. So that's a really bad day, right? And the prognosis was even worse. So I was five minutes from amputation at one stage, which obviously didn't happen. But then the prognosis was after they rebuilt my leg and put in like a seven inch plate and 13 screws. Okay, you survived the accident but you're, you're going to have a limp for the rest of your life, right? So that's a moment that could actually break somebody emotionally because it's like, oh my God, I'm going to have a limp for the rest of my life. But here's what I say to people in really detrimental, dire circumstances. If it's outside of your control, the number one thing that all resilient people do is they accept the moment within the moment right there and then. So in the car, when I looked down and my leg was mangled and I can't emphasize enough how much it was mangled. My orthopedic surgeon at the time said it was the worst leg injury he had seen outside of a motorbike accident, right? That's how bad we're talking. But I accepted it in the car. I looked down and went, all right, well, that's that. So I'm going to accept that right there and then. But then when they told me I'd have a limp for the rest of my life, I knew I could control that because I was in control of my own leg. So I, instead of accepting that I would have a limp, I actually actually booked a theater for three months from that day. So I booked a theater in Dublin called Vicker Street. And I said, no, I'm going to walk on stage with no limp. And they said, that's impossible. And I said, no, have you not heard of Audrey Hepburn? The way she split the word impossible into I'm possible. And they started laughing at me. And I was like, I live by that. I hear people saying impossible day in, day out with all the stuff that I do. So I said, I'm going to walk on stage. I'll invite you all. So ultimately, I walked back on that stage again three months later with no limp. But then the following year, 2008, our daughter was born. And she was born with what's called Herb's palsy, which is a paralyzed arm, basically. And, uh, and when she was born, that would break some people, right? But I immediately accepted it. I was like, well, this is out of my control. I got to accept it immediately because that's the right thing to do. And then I got to figure out how can I help this? How can I heal her arm? So luckily, her arm was paralyzed for three months. But luckily, through the physio and research that I did outside of the physio that they told me to do by going on what I call a massive action plan, ultimately, I healed her arm. But she had no movement in the arm for three months. And a lot of people would have given up before the end of that three months. And then a final example in 2008, like my grandfather was killed in a botched burglar like in the same house that he lived in for 60 years. They, a couple of burglars broke down his front door, beat him up, 
and he died five days later. And, uh, you know, it even upsets me to share that now. But ultimately, you know, I accepted it right there and then in the moment. And then I figured out strategies of what I could do with that moment to magnify the positive. So in that moment, I basically lobbied the government here in Ireland to get mandatory sentencing for aggravated burglary, which I didn't get. But I did manage to get the law clarified so now we can adequately protect ourselves within the boundaries of our uh, house. That And that includes the perimeter of a garden, which uh, wasn't in, in place beforehand. But with each of those moments, here's the important part. Two things. One is... I could have been broken by any of those. And a lot of people would be, right? But you see, I put the strategies in place way in advance of those unexpected moments to have the resilience necessary to get through those moments. And that loops back down to your question, the subconscious mind, right? So there's a couple of things that I do daily. One is that 15 minute practice to really harness the power of my subconscious mind. But then I do a lot of other things too. And I've been doing them for a long time ahead of where now it seems quite, I suppose, popular to do these things, but people should be doing these things. So one is, for example, do something uncomfortable every single day. We've gotten way too comfortable, right? So when you say, you know, broken people or people who are downbeat or whatever it is, and they're just kind of sitting in their houses, like you're in a nice, comfortable house or apartment in New York City. I'm here in a cabin in my back garden outside my house and I'm comfortable. But when it starts lashing rain outside, I don't grab an umbrella. I put on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and I walk for 20 minutes in the lashing rain, which sounds ridiculous. There's nobody else out in the roads, right? You know, I look at like David Goggins does crazy stuff like this. I'm sure you're familiar with him, right? But it's so true. I walk around the freezing cold, wet rain. Why? Because that is building my foundation, my building blocks of resilience every day. Life is too comfortable and cushy for people right now. We got to push ourselves to be uncomfortable. So I do that daily. I take freezing cold showers daily. I've been doing it for 20 years now ahead of the popularism of Wim Hof. And by the way, I'm a fan of Wim, right? So I love him, but I've been doing this for 20 years. Two to three minutes, freezing cold shower in the morning. Why? Because it dumps dopamine, serotonin and adrenaline into your system. So I say this to depress people all the time. Take a cold shower every day for 21 days. And they say to me, and, and, and most people will say this, by the way, most depressed or anxious people go, I, I can't do that. There's just no way. There's no way I can do that. And I go, okay, we'll stay depressed then. And they, they get all offended, right? And I'm like, well, what are you offended by? Either you want a strategy or you don't want a strategy. I'm a scientist. I've been doing it myself for years. All of my clients follow this. And those that do, not only are they successful and wealthy and healthy, they're living their optimum prime lives. There's things you can do. And uh, and these are things that are, I just say to people, you know, it's not binary even. It's just, it's not a yes or no. It's just like, go do these things because they're good for you. And there's nothing bad or harmful can come from these things. But to loop it back around again, you know, it takes discipline to have a freezing cold shower every morning. It takes discipline to do your breath work. It takes discipline to walk out in that freezing cold Irish dirty weather in a pair of shorts and t-shirt and go, oh my God, this is horrible, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because if my if one of my parents drops dead in a week, like both of my parents are still alive. I'm just giving this as a stupid example, right? That can either break me or I can be the foundation for the rest of the family to rely on. And I choose to be the foundation for the rest of the family to rely on. That doesn't mean it doesn't have, I don't have flaws and I don't hurt and I don't have pain. I do. I have all of these things, but I can control. And that's what I think people need to, to kind of figure out their own way of. Um, but for me, I, I don't know any other way other than I call it creative, relaxed, creative visualization in an alpha brainwave state. I mean, call it self-hypnosis if you want to call it that, right? But whatever it is, it's very different than meditation though. Meditation is great for you, but meditation is designed to empty your brain, not program your brain. So I say program your brain or be programmed. So if you want to do meditation, brilliant, big fan, go for it. But don't think that that's a substitute for actually creative visualization and how to program your mind. They're two very separate things is what I would say, you know? Interesting. Sorry, I went, off on a, I went off on a tangent there. I just started blurbing there. Apologies. No need to apologize whatsoever. I just hope you're ready for the amount of questions that I have now because Go. I, I love this. Firstly, let me start with what does doing something uncomfortable, and I agree with you wholeheartedly here, what does doing something uncomfortable do for you chemically, mentally, so on and so forth? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So resilience, we talk about resilience, right? So my two things, my two top tips on resilience are, you know, magnify the positive, which I, you know, which I'll talk about in a moment. And then, sorry, accept the moment and then magnify the positive, okay? So if you're comfortable all the time and not continuously pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone or not continuously making yourself uncomfortable, then you're not going to have a healthy level of cortisol in your body, right? People are now frightened of cortisol, you know, because it's a stress hormone, okay? The issue is back in the days when we were frightened of lions and tigers because they were around every corner and they might actually eat us, right? We had a heightened level of cortisol, but we were running from things all the time and we were hunter gatherers. So we were releasing that cortisol all of the time. The problem now is we still have a massive level of stressors around us and we're containing the heightened level of cortisol levels that we find through, you know, either problems in a family or problems within a business or whatever. But people get that then confused between when you actually need a certain level of cortisol in your system and then release it. So by taking, just as an example, it can be a walk in, in the snow or in the rain. Like I know you're having crazy weather out there, right? Put on a pair of shorts, Wim Hof style, and walk out in the snow. The reason he does that and the reason that I've been doing these crazy things for so long is because I know that that's going to induce cortisol levels in my body. But by walking through it, I'm releasing the cortisol levels, which is then going to allow dopamine and adrenaline and serotonin to jump into my system. Very similar with taking a cold shower. If you want to get away from that stuff, it could be just like, I don't know, like a swim in the sea, whatever it is that just pushes you outside of your comfort zone and and just physically puts you into a stressed state. But if you're in that stressed state and you've got that healthy level of cortisol and then you're able to release it, right? Then you're building those foundations of resilience and you're building, you know, mental, your mental programming system in order to, again, you know, take control of whatever situation that ultimately you find yourself in, in any given day or any given moment in time. So that's why these things are so important is to allow us to begin to deal with these stressors, allow us to deal with cortisol levels ourselves without, again, having to go to a store and grab a bunch of pills. What doesn't mean, by the way, I'm anti-science or anti-pills. I'm not. Some people chemically need assistance. That's absolutely true. But we're in a moment now where people need to understand that it's not the first port of call. It shouldn't be the first port of call. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do for yourself, first and foremost, without medicating yourself is what I would say. And that's important too, you know? Absolutely. Now, one of the things you mentioned before was accepting the moment. And you gave us three examples that you accepted, which are pretty traumatic. I I would say so myself. What does it take to accept the moment when shit really hits the fan. I mean, it, it, is it a muscle that's built? Because it's not easy whatsoever. No, you know, that that, that was one of the harder things that, that, that I learned in life, right? So it's a life skill, you learn it. So I really think I learned that in two different ways, accepting the moment. So as an entertainer, you know, you're going to get the doors. So obviously there's two different brands within my own brand. One is the entertainer. And then the other is like, you know, mind coach, executive coach, speaker, entrepreneur, and all the rest of it. And they're two very distinct brands. But as the entertainer, you know, any seasoned entertainer will tell you, you've thousands of doors slammed in your face. And even then when you make it, when I say make it, I mean, when I'm, you know, for me, I make television. I'm in the middle of filming a TV series right now in Ireland, which is crazy because uh, I thought they would never commission it given the pandemic. But ultimately we're, we're in production now. But even when you make it, even when you're selling out theater shows, Everybody has an opinion, right? So you're going to get your door slammed in your face. People are going to say no. They're going to say they hate your material. Like it's doggy dog. And I think it just took me a long time to understand that if I can't figure out a strategy necessary to get around or through a moment, and if I know it's genuinely outside of my control and I can't manipulate the course of action to get through or out of the other side of that, then I got to accept it. So I think I learned that then, like just through the amount of doors that were slammed in my face. And to be honest, the amount of rude people who just told me to go fuck myself, right? Just like, mm. you're, you're, and just beat me down. Like you're crap, you're shit, you're not gonna make it. No, no, no. And like, and really like nasty. Like meeting a lot of nasty people right along the way. So I think I I eventually just learned from my mental health, a good thing to do is to accept it. But then more importantly, it was the car accident. So I was in Daisy Hill Hospital, which is Newry, which is in the north of Ireland. 
and the trauma surgeon Patrick Holland Maguire was his name. See, I, I'm neurotic like this. I remember all this stuff, and I only heard his name once, right? So, and that's back in 2007, and. My foot was wrapped up around the wrong way, as I said, and he kept pulling it back into its socket. And I kept tensing and screaming because of the pain, right? And I was screaming and eventually just stopped. And he said, Keith, you've been out of the car for an hour and a half, an hour and three quarters. There's no blood going to your foot. It's gone blue. You're five minutes from amputation unless you can figure out how to do this. So in that moment, I accepted the fact that I'm going to lose my foot unless I figure out how to allow this man to put my foot back in. In other words, stop tensing so much. And that was the one time I went to another place in my head and I used all the techniques that I've been talking about for all of the years to mentally allow this man to pop my foot back in. And I actually genuinely self-anesthetized my foot because you see, he, he couldn't give me the medication because it was just he had to just get the foot back in. You know, he couldn't give me the painkillers or whatever. So that was like how I learned to accept those moments. But then I think it also comes from just coaching a lot of resilient people over the years. So and understanding and asking them, oh, what is it that you think makes the difference between your resilience and somebody else's resilience? And what came back to me was what I kind of self-discovered, if you like, which is acceptance first, coupled with then magnifying the positive, you know? Right. Now, one thing you're, you're, you're mentioning here is people doubting you a lot, right? You, you mentioned yeah. it when you were telling us through traumatic experiences in regards to doctors telling you, you're, ne- you're never going to walk without a limp. What's yeah. your advice for someone listening in regards to dealing with the doubters? Because it's not necessarily an easy task either. It's difficult, right? I think, well, first and foremost, is we're all too consumed by digital now. Right. Mm. I, I think digital has a lot to do with it. And I think a lot of people pay far too much heed and far too much attention to the doubters, the naysayers online. And, you know, I know another person who's been on your podcast, Grant Cardone, like he's mentioned it. He loves like in his head, he loves the haters. So in his head, he, he's reframed that in his head to love the haters, because if, if they're hating on him, he's doing something right, which is a good way to see it. So I think reframing is very interesting. So like that's just an example of how he reframes those situations. But first of all, I just don't listen to the doubters for the most part. So I don't even need to necessarily reframe them. However, you know, in some instances, when people are doubting me, I have to deal with them in business. So for me, I reframe them in my mind. So think of it like this. I remember years ago, I said to my wife, I hate putting out the trash, right? And then she looked at me sideways and I looked back at her and I went, oh my God, am I being so stupid here? I'm like, there's a guy who's willing to come and collect the rubbish and trash out of my house in the morning. He's willing to you know, hang off the back of a truck regardless of the weather. He's willing to come up and take all that trash and put it in the back of a bit. And he's got to do that for eight hours tomorrow. And I'm moaning about the 30 seconds maybe that it takes me to wheel out the trash. Oh my God, I'm so grateful that that guy is going to come to my house tomorrow morning and collect all the trash out of our house. And ever since I reframed it like that, I now just run out and happily give away the trash. It's like, oh my God, this is so amazing that somebody's going to come to do this for me. So cognitive reframing is something that I use a huge amount. So, and and then I talk about this a lot again in other you know talks that I've given and whatnot. You know, I love subliminal persuasion. So in other words, if somebody doubts me, not only do I reframe the doubt, I then manipulate the course of the conversation to still get what I want, regardless of whether they doubt me or not. And I think that, that I think that's important. If you learn techniques like that, you can actually make a little game out of it, a little cat and mouse game. So I'm saying that now with people that you have to negotiate with or people that you have to talk to, not necessarily the noise that you get online. So I think online, again, you know, you can only do two things. One is either learn to actually genuinely ignore it and don't even look at it, or you got to reframe it, which as I said, like Grant Cardone, I just noticed the way he talks about it all. Come on, hate me, hate me, hate me. I got the house, I got the wife, I got the kids. I'm not necessarily sure that's the right way of reframing it either, by the way. Not to knock on Grant, but you know, I, I would come, I'd have a good conversation with him about that. But ultimately, cognitive reframing, I think, is key. It's like a dishwasher, right? Oh, I hate filling the dishwasher. No, you can either spend an hour washing the dishes or five minutes using a service that you've bought, paid your hard earned money for. You should be delighted you have a dishwasher. Oh my God, I'm so happy I have a dishwasher. Just fire the stuff in, right? It's not a big deal. And that, that's just an example off the top of my head of like how to cognitive reframe all of the time, you know? I love that. I'm curious, what brought you down this path of mind work, brain hacks, so on and so forth? 
Good question. So I've, I'm in a very strange, bizarre position, right? Because I do a lot of things. Some people specify in just one area. I quite like the variety of what I do. Now, that means I probably do get less sleep than I need. And by the way, I've done a lot of study on sleep. The optimum level of sleep, generally speaking, for the average human being is seven hours of sleep. Not eight, not nine, not six and a half. It's actually seven. But anyway, I digress. I don't get enough sleep because I actually love what I do too much and I do a lot of things. But to go back to it, when I was five I got a magic set and that got me into magic right so I started to perform magic every year after that and learn as much as I could about magic then when I was 14 I got a pamphlet if you like on hypnosis called practical hypnotism by E. Wolf you can still get it online actually super thin book on hypnosis and that's when I started learning about hypnosis and then when I was in college so I studied chemistry in college so when I was studying chemistry my girlfriend at the time who's my wife now she was studying psychology and then I started to read all of her psychology books so that's when I started to mix psychology hypnosis and magic together to now uh, coin the term if you like a brain hacker so that's how that kind of all came about and came to fruition. And then I just got passionate about understanding, like really understanding human psychology and the power of the brain and the power of the subconscious mind. And that's why I qualified as a hypnotherapist and then started helping people and assisting people probably about 15 years ago now. And then in latter, you know, in latter days and in, in the last couple of years, I guess, I really just brought my client list down to less than 10 people at any one time. And they're all either high performing business people or high performing athletes. That's what I specify in right now, you know? I love that. And I, I love the way that you combined everything. I mean, going back to your TED talk and in, in the, the later minutes of that TED talk, you know, you were combining magic with what looked like energy, right? When you had right. uh, the gentleman lay out the cups and there was a spike under it and you were, yeah. you were blindfolded. It was really incredible. So uh, kudos to Thanks. you again. I was going to ask like, how much, like, how do you actually feel someone else's energy? Like, I, I know that we have an energy field around us. I, I agree with that right. wholeheartedly. Nora, but yeah. Walk me through that though. Well, I think, you know, for me, I'm intrigued by different things. Okay. So I'm super intrigued by energy fields. I'm super intrigued by then everything that can affect those energy fields, such as, for example, acupuncture. So when I was, here's a good example. When I was healing my leg, Victor Salinas, who was the lead physio in Liverpool Football Club at the time. So I flew over there for my physio in order to get on that stage three months later. That was part of my massive action plan in my head. So Melwood Training Ground is where I went. And I remember he, like my leg hadn't moved in like, you know, a couple of months at this stage because it was in a full leg cast for, I don't know, eight weeks or something. Um, and I couldn't even weight bear. I couldn't even put any weight on my leg. And I lay down on a plinth and he spent about an hour and a half literally just rubbing his hands and kind of going over not just my leg but my whole body and and I was lying there going I'm not so sure about this guy you know like is he going to try and tell me he's going to heal my body using just like Reiki Mm. you know and and I'm a bit skeptical in my head about this stuff and I'm like then though then like an hour and a half later he said he literally said this to me he said you can scream you can cry you can puke on yourself you can go to the toilet on yourself he said I don't care take a deep breath in and they ripped his elbow into my leg right for an hour bearing in mind it hadn't moved in like months and that was what was necessary so he coupled I guess energy healing with real physical healing um, and for me I can just sense people's energies now at this stage and it's weird for me because I find it hard to eloquently explain how I do that if I'm being honest with you so as a mentalist I can just read people's body language but also read their energy fields if you like but I don't call that it's not like a psychic reading or auras and that's where it's I find it hard to distinguish so for example sometimes when I give a, a talk online because I've been online now like everybody else for two years right and I've been dealing with the likes of Facebook and uh, Google and PayPal and all of these different companies where they hire me to come in and just give talks but when I look at a like a, a single page gallery view i can immediately read the room right i can immediately read 25 people's energies and i can immediately tell how they are emotionally in their houses but i find it hard to describe even how i do that i'm not so sure it's just right now it's just instinctual and intuitive you know that's interesting that you're able to do it digitally like i I feel like it would be easier in person because you're you're with them face to face, you know, like you said, body language is a huge thing. Being able to do it digitally is really interesting. Well, it's actually great because I didn't realize I didn't even give much thought. I mean, let's face it, two years ago now, nobody had heard of Zoom. Come on. I mean, people say they had, nobody even heard of Zoom. So when I flipped online, I wasn't even thinking about it. And then, I, then actually I realized in some instances, not all instances, it's actually a benefit. And here's why is because 
you can't really read where my eyes are looking at you. So I can actually be staring at your shoulders looking for a one-sided shoulder shrug, or I could be looking at your lips for an asymmetrical lip movement, or I could be looking for pacifying gestures, and I can actually tell a lot by looking for these things. But ultimately, when you're in person, if I'm looking for these things, you might notice the direction of my eyes. So it's actually easier for me to read your body language right now. Uh, because I said, all these different things, whether, whether it is that I'm looking for a lie, if I'm lie detecting you, or if I'm just generally looking for if I've said something that's made you feel uncomfortable and you can't see where my eyes are going. So that's where I found it actually almost better on Zoom in a one-on-one case than in real life, you know? Absolutely. I'm curious, what, what are you reading from me right now? <laughs> well, I would say this. I would say you're on an upward trajectory, but internally you're actually quite nervous about where you're going at this exact moment of time. Whereas if I'd asked you two years ago, your confidence was actually right up there with the sore and the trajectory. Whereas right now you're in that intermediate moment in time where you're wondering whether or not to actually stick with the podcast or spin out into something else. So I don't know That's- if that makes sense. That's interesting. You know, so I, I, I agree with part of it, actually. I am a little rattled internally right now, and I'm always transparent about this on the show. I deal yeah. with agoraphobia. So I, yep. put my, I put myself in situations that are highly uncomfortable to expose myself. Yep. So uh, I, I've been doing that recently, and I think I crossed the line a bit or, or did a little bit too much, and it's had me rattled. So it's really interesting that you say that. In regards to the podcast, so this is, this is my pride and joy. I, I, conversations like these, Keith, I mean, I would never, I, I can't stop this. This is incredible you know well here's a crazy thing for you though so here's a mad thing i don't i don't know if i should share this with you or not you might not like it so i've dealt with thousands of people with thousands of issues over the years and some agoraphobics too right but i got a a crazy email the other day and it was from a lady whose husband had been agoraphobic and she sent me this email and she was like i don't know if you remember me keith or not but you you came you tried to help my husband with his agoraphobia he had severe agoraphobia he hadn't left the house in a number of years and unfortunately he died in the middle of the pandemic due to his agoraphobia and she even put it in there she went i remember you telling me that you know this might become your first failure now it isn't my first failure i've had many other failings but i felt really bad because i tried to help him and it didn't work and unfortunately he passed away so agoraphobia i've dealt with a lot of other agoraphobics which i've been successful with getting them out of the house so i understand uh, agoraphobia and different people have different reasons for being agoraphobic but i would tell you this that um you know i can actually put you in touch with somebody off air who might be able to help you with your agoraphobia a hypnosis is fantastic for things like agoraphobia. I don't know if you've tried it or not. Please. I would love that. I haven't tried hypnosis. I've, I've done CBT, just cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy, which is great. I mean, for the emotional stuff, I mean, listen, especially men, we, we suppress and I, I know I suppressed. I can't speak on everyone's behalf, but I suppressed my entire life. So that was great for that. Sure. But I've had a few traumatic experiences where uh, they've just lingered and maybe it's subconscious, right? I'll give you an example. I don't know. New Year's Day, I walked into the gym you know, to, to get a workout in. And I had a great freaking workout, Keith. Like th- this workout was fantastic, but I went a little bit too hard to the point where I felt really hot. So I, I was leaving the gym and I felt like I was going to pass out. And I literally told the girl at the front desk, I'm like, listen, I, I don't feel good. I'm just going to lay here for one second. Give me, give me some time to breathe yeah. and recover. Gave me a Gatorade. Five minutes later, I was good. Today, I walk into the gym instantly triggered. Oh, yeah. instantly triggered. Yeah. You know, so, so there's some subconscious stuff, but I would love to talk about that off air. I know I have you for a few more minutes. I need, I need to bring up the book. I know you have this new book out. You said it's on Amazon now. I'm going to make sure all links, all of that good stuff is in the show notes, right. but brain hacks, everyday mind magic for creating the life you want. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I packed it full of brain hacks to do exactly that. And like, I find it hard to, to give it a top line, but if I was to give it a top line, it would be reduce anxiety, reduce stress and live a life with positivity. That'd be the top line, right? And it's packed with many brain hacks that you, you can do on a daily basis. Like I came up with this one, which really works, by the way, that if you find yourself like being triggered by something, right? You literally take a moment, just step away from people or whatever, or just do it in the moment and literally 
draw a figure of eight, an infinity loop sign, I call it, on the back of your hand, and you inhale for one loop of eight, and then exhale for another loop. Inhale for, and by focusing on that, you'll just begin to relax down all of your fight or flight mechanisms by that one little breathing technique. And then I've got like, I don't know, maybe 15 creative visualizations in the book for all kinds of different things. So positivity, taking calculated risk, all of these different, you know, confidence. But then I also have an addition, a secret hidden portion of my website that has audio recordings of me talking you down into these creative visualizations, which really helps people as well. And look, it's been a number one bestseller here in Ireland, which is great. But look, uh, for me, I wrote the book for two reasons. One is to just, you know, have a legacy for my family and my kids. But more importantly, then just to show people that you know, there isn't just one way to take control of your mind, right? There's lots of ways. So that's why there's literally hundreds of brain hacks in there. And some of them are very simple. Some of them are very complex, but it's to live a life of positivity and achieve magical things in your life. And I'm very grateful that I've lived a life like that already. And since the pandemic began, by the way, by practicing the techniques in the book, I've achieved a lot of stuff. And again, I'm only using that as an example, not in any way at all. I hate people bragging, right? I don't like bragging, but I I use myself just as an example. You can do the same. Anybody can do the same. It doesn't matter who you are. So for me, using the brain hacks in the book, I use them on myself. So I got the book published, right? And I talk about how to you know, yes set people coupled with anchors and triggers subconsciously so they don't even know that you're programming them to take a decision that you want them to take. You know, so I talk about how to do that in the book. The TV show that I got here in Ireland, I did that by a certain technique of mirroring. And a lot of us have heard of mirroring and pacing and NLP, but I talk, you know, in depth about how to correctly mirror somebody in order to get them across the line by building that instant rapport with them. So look, all of the techniques in the book I use myself, but it's a, hopefully I, I, think an interesting read. And I give a lot of examples from my own life where I've used this stuff, you know? Absolutely. Now I'm curious, you know, if someone picks up this book and they're using these brain hacks and they're achieving all of this greatness in their life, can you achieve too much with these brain hacks? Right. So for example, you know, I mean, a lot of people self-sabotage when they hit an upper limit there, they become, you know, a billionaire or whatever the case is. They, you know, get this perfect person in their life and then all of a sudden they just sabotage it. Is that a thing? Completely. I think you've hit the nail right in the head. Bang. So I don't know how or why, I don't know how to explain this, but you've got to be mindful of that as you're on your trajectory, right? You've got to keep yourself in check. And I find that a lot of people lose the run of themselves, as I call it. And they also perpetuate this perfect myth that doesn't exist, right? This you know, beautiful family, beautiful husband, beautiful wife, beautiful kids, and all these photographs with you know helicopters and giant houses and this and that and the other and on the yacht and yeah, ooh, yeah. And and I look at all that and I go, wow, there's some serious problems behind the scenes there. There's mm. serious problems. So I say it like this overt displays of affection, especially the days that we're in, right? Online, overt displays of affection where people are like really happy clapping all the time and perpetuating this perfect, you know, ideal world that they then want you to follow and they want to grab your money. I call bullshit on that every time. Genuinely not talking about anybody in particular. I'm talking about the hundreds of people who are doing that online right now. So I don't pretend that it's all happy clapping in my life. It certainly isn't. I was giving out to my one of my kids last night. I tried everything. I tried setting her. I tried bribing her. I tried talking to her. I tried being kind to her. I tried being nice to her just to get her to tidy her room. And and that was over a couple of weeks and it still didn't happen. And I stand there last night going, my God, I'm going to, sh- am I going to start shouting at her now? Like every other human being in the world, is that what works? Do you know what I mean? So I don't perpetuate that perfect ideal scenario, but I'd rather have that than have three nannies minding my kids and not really knowing my kids. I'd rather have those troubled times than pretending that it's something other than it's not. And the problem is when people gain access to a lot of money, they go the easy route, right? Which is like, oh, I'll get a nanny for each kid. Oh, you know, we'll get the nip and the tuck. Oh, you know, I'll look for a biohack to make my physique look amazing rather than doing what you're doing New Year's Day, which is the hard graft, get down to the gym and get your ass in the gym. But I think the problem with that is with that amount of wealth and that amount of success, you know, people lose the run of themselves and they 
they can't distinguish themselves between what's real and what's not real. And then it all comes crashing and tumbling down, right? And I see that more often than not, is when it all comes crashing and tumbling down, it's a very messy scenario that they end up in. And then dare I say it, a lot of people emotionally can't handle that then. So when it flips quickly, you know, you see a lot of people at that level, like committing suicide. Like it's terrible to say it, but that is actually the truth. So I think the most important thing that you can do when you're building a business such as yourself or myself or whoever it may be, and maybe you're already successful, maybe you're already got a couple of million in the bank, you don't need any more money or whatever it is, you gotta stay real with your two feet on the ground. And the most important thing to do that is to not get caught up in what I call high society, right? Mm. So I could very easily, right now, bring my wife to any amount of events that are happening in Ireland, because Ireland's back open now. All of a sudden, there's all these events happening with high society, and we're being invited to all of these, and I'm like, nah, not interested. Like, I might go to the odd one, right? Because it's fun. But I'm not going to get caught in the game. I'm not going to get caught in, oh, you know, let's put on a Dolce Gabbana dress and suit and go to these events. Yeah, it's nice to do that once a year. But when I look up online and I study people, because I study people, and I'm not talking about just online, I'm talking about here in Ireland too. People who I know have got that level of wealth. Like that's what they end up doing, right? That's what they end up becoming. And they become a parody of themselves then. And uh, and then they understand maybe a couple of years later that they are a party of themselves and they wake up one morning, they decide the whole world has crashed in on their head and maybe the banks come after them and then they can't see dark from light at that moment. So I think you're absolutely right. I think we all have to be mindful of what is success really. Success for me is still spending loads of time with my kids, playing board games with my kids, but earning enough money that I can pay my mortgages and get that time with them and be selfish with that time with them. So like last night I booked a... Uh, a holiday, but it's a holiday in a four-star hotel for three days in wet, rainy Ireland next month. <laughs> I'm not looking to go to the Caribbean or Dubai where I see these people putting up the photographs of them and their kids. And the kids aren't even happy, right? Because the kids are having to wear these, you know, iron fucking shirts and, the, you know, boat shoes and stand in there for a photograph of mommy and daddy and look happy. And the kids are like horrified. But I see this a lot. I mean, you know, and you know, you know, some people that you know that I know that you know, you know, you see that happen, right? And it's like, ah, you know, come on, let's get real here. You know, a hundred percent. And kids need to be kids, by the way. You know, I don't agree at all with any of these people who are saying, oh, you know, here's here's my kid and I've taken my kids out of school and the best schooling is flying all around the world and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, all that, like, that's all nonsense. Kids need to get on their bike and fall off their bike and graze their knees. Do you know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. You know, and that's what I say. But again, you've you got to be mindful of that. And, and I have to be mindful of my own children. They're spoiled. So, you know, he's getting paid now. And it's only this week that this happened, like two euros for like just mopping the floor. I don't care about the two euros. I just need him mopping the floor so he understands what work is. You know what I mean? Right. So, so, so we have to be mindful of all that. And again, I look, I don't have all the answers. I get it wrong a lot of the time too. And I'm open about that as well. You know, I get it wrong. And again, I think sometimes people in my scenario, they don't say that they get it wrong, right? Mm. They look like everything's perfect all the time. Jesus, everything's not perfect, you know, but uh, but life is good, you know, and it's as good as it can be because of the systems that I put in place in order to live a, a productive and fruitful life, you know? Absolutely. Now, when you're able to define success and how you want to live for yourself and truly for yourself, that's a beautiful thing. And I'm glad that you shared that with us, but I, I, need, I need to let you go in a few minutes. I got one last question for you, Keith. Yeah. If you could only be remembered for one thing, one piece of advice, meaning if you live to whatever year you want to live, however old you want to live, you hop on as many stages, write as many books, hop on right. as many podcasts, have as many kids, raise them, do all, all the things you want to do, but could only be remembered for one piece of advice, what would it be? It's a heavy question, right? Um, it is. It is. Well, first of all, like when you say live to a certain age, like, okay, so first thing I, w- I would make sure that's written on my tombstone, whatever you call that. I always forget what that's called, right? Um, epitaph, is it? Or whatever that's called on your tombstone, right? Like, just don't write, he was boring. That's all I ask, right? That's, that's the first thing. If you write, he was boring, then I'm going to turn over my grave, right? But advice, look, I suppose advice is very subjective, isn't it? For me, I think... Something that I will be very proud of because I didn't find it easy was writing the book. And I literally only wrote that, not only, but mainly wrote that for my kids. Yes, my wife as well, but really my kids. Because if I drop dead tomorrow, I know they can always 
open up that book and have a sneaky little read and it might genuinely help them down the line. And then the other advice, you know, we can get very philosophical about advice, right? Like I've got gazillions of books, right? So this is only like basically a small portion of my books. So I've got books up there and this is in my cabin. I got books over there. I got books over there. So, you know, you can get wax philosophical about stuff and you can like, you know, there's great quotes out there like Einstein, imagination is more important uh, than knowledge and all that kind of stuff. But for me, I think it comes back to what I say to my kids every day. And what I say to my kids every day when they leave school is NGU, never give up. Just never give up. I scream it into them. I shout it to them all the time. Just don't give up NGU. And they're bored of me saying it, but I, I know that it's getting in there, right? I know that it's getting in there. Um, and then the other thing I say to them every day, I say to them, find somebody in schools who's sad and make them happy. Mm. I say that to them every day. Now, I don't think my kids are going around in school looking for sad kids, making them happy, right? But I would like to think that if they saw a kid that would really needed a little bit of help, they might go over and just say, are you okay? And I think the world is so polarized right now. I could come up with a crazy philosophical quote for you. But I think the, the final thing I would say is like, let's all have just some more empathy for each other. Like you got the whole Joe Rogan, crazy Spotify, Neil Young fucking madness going on in the world right now. And, you know, I just look at that and I go, as simple as the statement I'm making is, and people can brush over it and ignore it, you know, empathy. Empathy is so key right now. And it seems to me that the world is lacking more than ever in empathy, like with the whole political divide that's going on in the world. And, and empathy is just so simple. It's just trying to understand the other person's viewpoint and understand what's going on inside their head. You know, you got the anti-vaxxers going for the vaxxers, the vaxxers going for the anti-vaxxers, the Trump's going for the other crowd, the other crowd going for the Trump crowd. And similar here in Ireland, I'm like, can we all just take a step back for a moment? And my advice is to just have empathy for each other again, you know? And I try to, and I fail sometimes, but I'm aware of it. I'm aware of trying to understand your viewpoint and not just immediately going, fucking no, no, you listen to me. This is my way. And it's like, it's like we're all kids again, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know what was brilliant is, um, I don't know if you saw the whole craziness that happened here this week where, you know, Russians were doing a military drill off the coast of Ireland and the, the fishermen tried empathy. They didn't get it. And then they drove out on their boats into the middle of the sea and were like, oh, no, Russia, you're not going to bomb here because if you bomb here, you're going to kill us all. But then the Russians showed empathy, like crazy as it may seem, you know, the Russians actually, OK, we'll empathize with the, the fishermen. The fishermen are right. We won't bomb there. Now, that's a bad example, of course, of, of what I'm saying. But ultimately, you know, Jacinda Ardern, who was the prime minister of New Zealand, she started off with amazing empathy at the start of her tenure. But now when COVID came in, she got too opinionated. And now she's losing all of her followers because her empathy is now lacking where she started with amazing empathy. So she's forgotten her own vision. She's forgotten what it was to actually just look through the viewpoint of other scared, shitless people. Everyone's scared right now. So the anti-vaxxers are scared. The vaxxers are scared. You know, it's a mess. So, and even with the whole Joe Rogan thing that I mentioned, like, you know, Joe needs looking at it through Neil Young's eyes and he looks and he's looking at it through Joe Rogan's eyes. And then all of their followers need to look at it through everybody else's eyes. Because if we did that, we would just have an understanding that life is going to be a lot easier if we just empathize with each other. So for me, yeah, look, I don't know. I don't know if I have any one quote. I think to go back to it though, if I skip over it and come back, it's NGU. Because I'll never give up, right? I'm a brute like that, you know? like I'm 45 and I'm still doing TV here in Ireland when, I've, when people keep telling me you can't keep doing television. And the next television I want to do will be out there in the US, even though I haven't done TV there in a couple of years. NGU, I'm back. I'm going to head back out there. It's on my board up there to have a TV show back out there by the end of 2023. So there you go. I love that. And hopefully that happens. Uh, I'm sure you're going to make it happen. NGU, that's a beautiful thing. And I love the way you tie in legacy and empathy and all of that as well. So yeah. Keith, first and foremost, I want to say thank you. Express my gratitude again. Going to have going to have socials, websites, where people can get the book. All of that will be in the show notes, but expressing gratitude again, Keith. Thank you. No problem. Thanks. Good to see you. Thanks very much. Cheers. You have just listened to the Decoding Success Podcast, the top 1% globally ranked podcast to help you level up in all buckets of life. And I believe this episode right here with our friend Keith Barry is an absolute testament to that as we have talked about numerous different things within this episode, everything from intuition, subconscious mind, reframing, being doubted 
reducing anxiety. The list goes on. Really, really incredible stuff here by our friend Keith. So I am going to urge you again, if you are still tuned into this episode, to make sure that you are sharing it, whether that be on social media, your Instagram story, your Instagram feed, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, your text messages, your group chats, your email threads, wherever, however, as long as you are making sure that you are sharing this to be a beacon of light to the people that are in your life through the insights, knowledge, wisdom, and all of that good stuff from our friend Keith Barry here today. To connect with Keith, make sure that you check him out in the show notes of this episode. Grab his new book, which is out now officially on Amazon. Again, the link is in the show notes of this episode as all of his socials and websites, all of that fun stuff is always there. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.